welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. The Beatitudes are a series of statements Jesus made at the beginning of his Sermon on the Mount, which we find in Matthew 5. Chris, a couple of weeks ago, introed for us the scene that which Jesus' words of the Beatitudes arrived on, with this idea that blessed, or blessed, depending on how you say it, uh, blessed cannot be translated simply to happy. Happy are you if you're mourning. Happy are you if you're meek. But instead, uh, the idea is that this word blessed is not how we see ourselves, but actually how God sees us. The Beatitudes are good news for us, not a list of legalistic, if you want to be happy, how-tos. Last week, Matt chatted in the morning gathering about the poor in spirit, and Joe in the night gathering last week uh, talked about the meek. And this morning, although I didn't hear it, uh, Chris talked about the morning. Although we aren't tackling the Beatitudes in the order that they are given, there is a logical progression. And the first Beatitude sets up the rest. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who know that they utterly depend on God and need God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. To them the kingdom of heaven is given, and they are commissioned to be kingdom bringers. Now, if you went around last Sunday morning, uh, maybe uh, just in the context of the whole series, I recommend that you go back and check out Matt's podcast. It is important for us as we study together this section of scripture to note that Jesus is not referring to eight different types of people. He is instead referring to eight different qualities of the same kingdom person. So it's not a case of merely picking which beatitude you would like to adopt in your life, meekness or mercy or persecution, though I'm not, I don't know why you'd want to adopt persecution into your life, but hey, maybe. Uh, but instead, rather, it is an attitude that we have to these different aspects of our life. All of these beatitudes interact with each other. They are not separate things. And tonight we're going to look at verse 9. The beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. I want for us to have a look at what it means to be a peacemaker and how we as followers of Jesus can do that. For me personally, when I first began to think about this concept of peace, and maybe even more so this week as we've seen so prevalent in the news, uh, the refugee crisis of the Syrians, This idea of peace can be quite a loaded term. Peace means different things to different people. And in a world full of wars and terrorism and violence, the concept of peace can seem far away and quite foreign. Perhaps for us privileged to live in a country such as New Zealand, the peace that we would describe in a non-war sense can seem something that we take for granted. But for those on different sides of conflict, where it be in the Middle East where conflict is rife, or maybe closer to home, conflict between neighbours or friends or spouses or um, family members, uh, peace means different things to different groups. Resolution looks different depending what side of the fence you're camped on. 
Now, I wonder tonight if you consider yourself to be a peacemaker in any way. You might be sitting here thinking, I don't know if I actually want to be a person of peace, because the images that the word peacemaker brings to mind don't particularly excite you. For some, I think the notion of being a peacemaker, in your head you might be thinking of maybe a bit of a hippie driving a combi van with a peace sign on the back. Uh, maybe some of you uh, might have an image of this. Uh, blessed other peacemakers. This is a legit sign-ridden sticker from uh, the sheriff of Houston County in Alabama. Uh, peacemakers as law enforcers, maybe some of you have that idea. Uh, another image I have for me sometimes when I think of a peacemaker is someone who refuses to sit on either side of the fence. They're like a doormat, maybe siding with everyone at the risk of offending someone and getting involved in conflict. Does anyone else feel like that sometimes, being a peacemaker? <laughs> but I know that there are some massive generalizations that I have used there. And I think the thing is, is that a peacemaker can be something not particularly attractive for us to adopt in our lives. But tonight what I'd like for us to come away with is a new view on what it means to be a peacemaker. Peace can be defined in different ways. Some would say it is a silencing of guns. Others might say peace is a feeling you have when you feel okay about something. But if we look at what the biblical view of peace is, the peace that is meant in this beatitude, it is much more than that. It is the concept of shalom. In Hebrew, this word shalom is derived from a root word meaning wholeness or completeness. Shalom is the concept of complete harmony with God, with others, and with the earth. Shalom is more than just economic or political harmony. It is every area of our lives. Daryl Johnson, in his book, The Beatitudes, says the biblical concept of peace involves so much more than inner tranquility and the absence of war. Shalom is a psychosomatic, relational, economic, racial, and spiritual wholeness. Tonight we will focus more on the relational side of peace or shalom. When I came to the Bible to consider who in the Bible is a character who is a peacemaker, who you would look at and think they lived their life in a way of a peacemaker. We really can't go past the person of Jesus. For Jesus is peace himself, and our ultimate example of what it looks like to be a peacemaker. In Isaiah 6, a prophecy of the Messiah who was to come, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And then in Micah 5, 4 and 5, again, the prophecy of the coming Messiah. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Jesus' purpose in coming to earth was to bring about the restoration of harmony to the earth. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. 
And as followers of Jesus, we ourselves are called to pursue peace. Psalm 34, 14, and again reiterated in 1 Peter 3, 11, says, turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. When the angels sung on Christmas Day at the birth of Jesus, they sung glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Daryl Johnson again says, glory to God is the infrastructure to peace on earth. No glory to God, no peace. Peacemaking first begins when we live out of a realization that our lives are not about us. We had Crave Camp last weekend, which for those of you who don't know what Crave is, it is the high school ministry here at Gateway. And we had a guy that some of you will know, and I think he's here tonight, Jeremy, so did come and speak. Uh, It was a great time for us all, and Jeremy had some great pearls of wisdom to share with us. But one thing in particular that I was reminded of this week as I was preparing to share tonight was that Jeremy talked about this idea that there are two choices in the story that you will live. One is the way of the world, and that is the story of sex, money, and power. This is a story where the main character is you. It's a story where you live a life where you get what you want, when you want, however you want. But the story that we as Christians are called to live is the story of the Bible, where the main character is God, and we are his people. He is the main character and central point of the story where he gets the glory. Our prevailing culture is one that affirms that everything is about you. It is about getting what you need, what you want, having your needs met, whatever, whenever will make you happy. And advertising campaigns echo this. They tell you that you deserve it, you are worth it. This will make your life better. And I know that for me, in my own life, I can be so guilty of living the story sometimes of what can benefit me best, what will suit me best, what will make me happy. Erin McManus says, when the world is about us, we do things out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, pride and greed. We tend to believe that we are the center of the universe, that people should love us, honor us, appreciate us, hold us in prestige, put us in the limelight, and at the same time we work to get more for us. The driving motivation for life is it's all about me. Peace or shalom in the Garden of Eden was shattered when Adam and Eve chose to love something else more than God. They loved themselves more than God. And the lack of peace in our society can be traced back to this point where they have chosen to love something else more than God, where we have chosen to love something else more than God. And more often, that thing that we have chosen over God is ourselves. But we're called to live differently. We're called to live out of a place that says God first. And living out of a place of God first is where peacemaking begins. I wonder tonight, what story are you living? Who is the main character of your story? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. The second thing tonight that I want to talk about is that being a peacemaker will cost us something. Colossians 1, 19 to 20 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Daryl Johnson says again in his book, The Beatitudes, shalom making involves a cross. How can it be otherwise? For how did God make peace with us? As I have read around this idea of being a peacemaker and um, have been pondering it and thinking about it for a few weeks now, I kept coming back to this phrase in my mind of giving up my rights. And this is exactly what Jesus continued to talk about in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 39 and 40, he said, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And then in Matthew 5:43, he says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Jesus tells us, in this moment, don't respond in the way that you think you're entitled to. Instead, respond in a different way, their needs above your own. When we choose to enter in and become peacemakers, our focus shifts from ourselves to those around us. As a peacemaker or a reconciler, we give up our focus on self to others. Now, I really like to be right, and I imagine in this room, I'm probably not the only one. Just me? Am I right about that? (laughs) I think um, that there is a sense of justice in all of us. But can you imagine the very example of peace himself, Jesus, standing before Pilate, and Pilate says to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, that's right, I am. Uh, I don't know what these people are on about. They're so idiotic. They have refused to recognize me for who I am. I'm the king of the Jews, for goodness sake. And Pilate says, well, do you not know how many things they testify against you? And Jesus says, I know. How dare they? Don't they get it? I'm right. They're wrong. But we know, of course, that Jesus did not respond in this way. This is the original passage of the conversation between Pilate and Jesus. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. And then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. No, the one human being who probably has had the most justification ever who's walked this earth stayed silent. Our very example by which we have to live our lives by is not a king coming on a horse waving a sword, but instead Jesus who knelt in the garden and said, not my will, not my rights, not myself, but thine be done. And then he laid down his life 
for the sake of reconciliation, for the peace of the world. Jesus didn't live in a state of constantly choosing to defend himself. Jesus responded differently depending on the situation. Sometimes he walked away. Sometimes he responded with absolute wisdom. Sometimes he broke through cultural and social barriers to bring grace and to bring healing. And so often for us, we're so easily offended. We so easily jump to the defense instead of choosing a road of peace. Sometimes we create the conflict. Sometimes we choose just to have an argument for argument's sake. Sometimes as Christians, we get caught up in petty arguments that unfortunately, because of our refusal sometimes to take a step back, to let God be God, that sometimes our witness to a broken world of who Jesus really is has been painted with a brush that he was never meant to be painted with. But Jesus, our ultimate role model, shows us a different way. Jesus gave up everything to bring peace to us on earth. He paid it all. Now, there are obvious limits to you giving up your rights. It doesn't mean that you will allow abusive or violent situations to happen to you. I'm not talking about rights in that way. And just because you make peace with your own rights doesn't mean that you then don't become about the rights of others. We are still called to battle for the least of these. William Barclay says, the peace which the Bible calls blessed does not come from the evasion of issues. It comes from facing them, dealing with them and conquering them. What this beatitude demands is not the passive acceptance of things. We're afraid of the trouble of doing anything about them. But the active facing of things and the making of peace, even when the way to peace is through struggle. Of course, as Christians, there are times when we will have to stand and face persecution and stand up for what we believe is right. I'm sure later on in the series, we are going to chat about the beatitude of being blessed when facing persecution. But I will say, though, that there is, of course, a time and place for us to make a stand. But there is a real difference between arguing for arguing's sake with someone who doesn't actually have their ears open to hear what you're trying to say. There is a difference between having a conversation with someone who's actually open to hearing differing opinions. The church is called to be a contradictory voice to that of the world, but always with love and grace, and not with a shaking fist. As peacemakers, we're invited into building a bridge between Jesus and those who do not yet know him. And I wonder if in those times when our sense of justice rises up, if we instead asked, why is it so important for me to get my own way here? Why is it so important for me to share my opinion or to have a comeback? I think, quite frankly, that sometimes the world is sick to death of people who, in the name of Jesus, feel the need to weigh in on every argument and make comments, particularly on social media, <laughs> that are of no help to anyone. People, I think, on social media, you can make comments that are faceless and it's almost an easy option. But more often than not, people go in there to vent an opinion and to stir up trouble. 
If we are calling ourselves followers of Jesus, then I wonder if we, in these moments, would consider what Jesus would do in this situation. Would he be responding with hatred and with anger, or in love? If I think of the one time that Jesus got really angry, it wasn't with the sinners out there, it was with the religious people who had strayed from the truth. One of my favorite movies that I enjoy to watch is a film called The Guardian. I don't know if some of you may, may or may not have seen it. Uh, it is based around a story of two guys who are involved as rescue swimmers for the US Coast Guard. And there are so many great analogies in this film. But for me, the one thing that always stands out every time I watch it is that the motto for these rescue swimmers is so that others may live. I wonder tonight, what is the statement for your life? What is it that drives you? I'm not talking about the fun, upbeat, maybe things you might Instagram quotes for your life. But what is your core conviction? What is it that you live your life by? Not just profess with your mouth, but is shown in the way that you act. Is your statement, so that I might live in a better house? so that I might drive a better car, so that I might be happier, so that I might have the things that I want, so that I might get my way, my planned life, through any means necessary? Or is it so that others may live? So that others may live and find peace in Jesus. Imagine this world, if everyone lived that way, it would be a different place. Last Sunday night, Jo talked um, about how she hates it when people don't indicate at roundabouts. Now, it must be a family thing, Jo. Jo and I are cousins, for those of you that don't know. Our mums are sisters. Um, I, hate, I also hate it when people don't indicate at roundabouts. It annoys me. But the thing I think that people need to realise about indicating, maybe I'm about to go on a rant, uh, is that you don't indicate for yourself. You're not indicating to remind yourself which way you're turning. You indicate for others. It is to show others the way where you are going. It is to point the way. And like this, our lives with Jesus, through the way we live as peacemakers, is so that when we are makers of peace in the lives of those around us, we will point the way to Jesus. We will bring good news to the people of our city and our nation. We will live and speak and act in a way that brings peace to the inner turmoil of people's lives through the message of Jesus, so that others may live. How do you become a peacemaker? I think we have to come to a place of finding our security and our significance in God which, of course, is much easier said than done. Whether it is peace between ourselves and another person or peace between two parties we find ourselves in the middle of, we have to make a choice to be a reconciler and a bridge builder rather than one who tears down. And we definitely need wisdom. This is not something that we can do alone. We need to ask God for the wisdom James 1 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God, for he gives generously without reproach, and it will be given. 
Wisdom sometimes is being silent until the appropriate time. Once words are out of our mouth, it is very hard to take them back. James 1 goes on to say, Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Words, I think, to live by. Jesus continued on in his Sermon on the Mount by outlining for us how we can partner with him to be peacemakers by being salt and light to the world, by loving our enemies, giving to the needy, not worrying about the speck in our friend's eye, but worrying about the plank in our own eye, and so on and so forth. And as I alluded to earlier, the point with with these Beatitudes is not that they are separate from each other. Each Beatitude is interpreted by the other. Especially with this particular Beatitude, as each of the previous seven Beatitudes are qualifications for the peacemaker. Daryl Johnson again says, Jesus is saying that those who can make peace in the world are those who know and admit their spiritual poverty, those who mourn over violence in the world and in their own heart, those who are meek, who recognizing their powerlessness throw themselves upon the power of God, those who hunger and thirst for right relationship for moral, economic, psychological, and spiritual wholeness, those who are merciful both to their allies and enemies, and those who are pure in heart. So what will it cost you? What will you have to sacrifice to be a peacemaker? Probably a whole lot of pride. The satisfaction of being right, you might have to give up some of your comfort. Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the cost of the discipleship concluded that disciples of Jesus make peace by choosing to endure suffering themselves rather than inflicting it on others. But I think if we can come to a place of finding security and significance in God, in God alone, then these concerns that we have about what we will have to give up they begin to disappear in the light of who he is. It's not a one-time fix, but something we have to continue to work at in our faith journey. And we may not always get it right, but we will keep on working at it. The road to peacemaking, as with all areas of life of following Jesus, is paved with sacrifice. Daryl Johnson, again, great writer, says, somewhere along the way, we have to come to terms with the fact that the cross is not only a source of new life in Christ, but is also the pattern of our new life in Christ. It is, of course, going to cost us something. When we live our lives for ourselves, this idea of sacrifice can produce an allergic reaction in us. But when we instead embrace the sacrifice and choose to be a peacemaker... We choose to live God's story and not the story of the world. The definition of a peacemaker in the dictionary is a person, group, or nation that tries to make peace especially by reconciling parties who disagree, quarrel, or fight. And I like this definition because it reminds me of these verses in 2 Corinthians. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We have been entrusted with the ministry of peacemaking, of reconciliation. And I wonder tonight for you, how is your bridge building going? Peacemaking will cost us something. Lastly tonight, peacemaking will make us more like God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Some translations of the Bible say that the peacemakers shall be called children of God. However, the Greek more literally translated is that the peacemakers will be called the sons of God. William Barclay says this. This is a typical Hebrew way of expression. Hebrew is not rich in adjectives, and often when Hebrew wishes to describe something, it uses not an adjective, but the phrase son of, plus an abstract noun. Hence, a man may be called a son of peace instead of a peaceful man. Barnabas is called a son of consolation instead of a consoling and comforting man. This beatitude says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And what it means is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be doing a God-like work. The man who makes peace is engaged in the very work which the God of peace is doing. What good news this is for us. That as we partner with God and go about doing his work of bringing shalom here on earth, he transforms us. Now, if we go back to before where we talked about in the Garden of Eden, the shalom that was broken there, what was it that the snake promised Eve? In Genesis 3, 5, the snake says to Eve, for God knows that when you eat of it, the apple, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. How interesting is it that the lie of the serpent, take back the power, Eve, and you will become like God, is the very opposite of this beatitude that Jesus shares. The lie of the enemy is play the power game. Take control, get what you want at whoever's expense, and you will become more like God. You will become the most powerful. But actually, in the kingdom of God, this kingdom that Jesus has announced here on the Sermon on the Mount, this topsy-turvy place where up is down and down is up, where the first shall be last and the last shall be first, where even as we give away our rights and we spend our lives on others, God gives back to us more generously than we could ever give. Jesus says the way to become like God is to become a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Our lives are not about us. Peacemaking will cost us something. But it will transform us and make us more like Jesus. We have been talking uh, for months now here at Gateway about living a transformed life. And maybe if the worship team could come, that would be great. We've been talking for months about a transformed life, and I wonder if in this time that for us as a community have been chatting about the things that transform us, 
I wonder if you have given time to reflect how your life is being transformed by God. I've given my life to Jesus, but what has changed? I've been walking with Jesus for a long time now. How is he shaping me and transforming me? What area of my life has God been pressing in on lately? What has changed recently in my relationship with God? I wonder if, as we stand and sing tonight, if we as a faith community can resolve together to live a story that is God first, that as we put him at the forefront of our lives, maybe for the first time, maybe once again, that the words of Matthew 5, these strange yet powerful statements that Jesus has made, that they might take hold of our lives. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.